People of Note on Fine Music Radio is proudly brought to you each week at this time by Peter Turin Productions. Fine Music Radio, Rodney Trudgeon welcoming you to this week's edition of People of Note. I have with me in the studio today a man of words, as you'll hear, we'll be discussing his latest book, and I'm talking about Tony Hurd editor of the Cape Times from 1971 to 1987. He was awarded the Golden Pen of Freedom by the World Association of Newspapers and the Pringle Medal by the local journalist body after his full-page interview with silenced ANC great-in-exile Oliver Tambo, and that was back in November 1985. Well, as we know, this saw Heard arrested under security laws, with charges months later dropped and the newspaper fined. He is finished writing the second stage of his memoirs, his personal experience over more than two decades, serving democratic governments as a special advisor and speechwriter. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. The book is called 8,000 Days, The Inside Story of an Editor in the Corridors of Power, Mandela, Mbeki and Beyond. Tony Hood, welcome. Welcome to Fine Music Radio. Good afternoon. I have to tell you that I was a little bit intimidated when I saw this book. But you may be pleased to know that as a non-political person, I found it really quite riveting. It almost reads like a novel. Is that what you sort of set out to do? Because it could have been actually a fairly dry academic record, couldn't it? But it sounds as though you specifically wanted it to have a wide appeal. Yes, politics can put people off with one or two other subjects. And I felt that I wanted to liven it up a bit, see the humor in politics, which is legion. Mm. And also to get someone like, happily I managed to get Zapiro, the cartoonist, yes. to give me access to all his cartoons. And I littered the pages with those. They make a lovely little interlude between chapters and elsewhere. And obviously you did choose depending on what the chapter was about. Yes, indeed. And because I always get annoyed when people have a book with, a, with an illustration that has no, bears no relationship whatsoever to mm-hmm. what you're reading. Yet the story itself of this book, 8,000 Days When You Were There in the Corridors of Power, is about a very important part of our history, isn't it? After 94 and with Mandela in power, you were there during the time before the chaos of the Jacob Zuma years, at at what point you left, didn't you? I left the presidency then. Mm -hmm. Then I spent four years boning up on everything I didn't know about mining. That's right. I went to the minerals department where I learned quite a lot about uh, that world and, one number one, how to clean it up because the mining companies haven't, you know, they've been controversial in our history. Mm. And I found it very interesting indeed. But that was four years after Zuma because, to be honest, my contract in the presidency had come to an end. I didn't seek to have it renewed. I had a, a very short period with Zuma when I was one of the special advisors in the Mm -hmm. presidency. Mm -hmm. But there was clearly no prospect that I would want to work under him. I'm sure not. Did you feel that right at the beginning? Uh, Yes, well, before then, because uh, I was a Tabo and Becky person. And so I was sort of, I was on the red list, as it were. Yes. And I was under no illusions that I wouldn't last long. 
So I went to the minerals department for, for four odd years, which was very interesting. And so different. That's the other thing. Both jobs are very different from having been an editor of a newspaper as famous as it was then, like the Cape Times. I want you just to tell at the beginning now about your being fired and about the circumstances of the Oliver Tambo interview. I suppose the question I want to ask you most of all is why did you do it, knowing that you were probably going to be fired or arrested or imprisoned or whatever? Journalists do that sort of thing. That's their job to shed light on dark corners, Mm -hmm. to um, try with a good sense of timing to choose the right moment to make an impact. Not that they are players, but if they're true to their craft, they will publish the maximum amount of information and knowledge about any particular subject. And the Cape Times had a long history of interviewing enemies, including Paul Kruger at the time of the Boer oh, really? War, Anglo-Boer War. Wow. And also, you know, Hitler was quoted widely in the world. Yes. And so in collaboration with my good friend in London, John Battersby, who is our London editor, uh, he was keen that the group, the morning group of newspapers, the Rant Daily Mail, Cape Times and others, would publish an interview with Tambo because he'd not been quoted since 1960. Mm. And this was uh, 1985. So that's a long time for a leader of a major force, the oldest nationalist movement in Africa, uh, not to be quoted. So John doubted that the editors would publish. There were about five or six editors in different parts of the country. So he and I cooked this up. And uh, I said, well, I'll do it. (laughs) And uh, the editor of the Cape Times had real authority Mm. over everything that went in the Cape Times, including adverts, if necessary. So I used that freedom, which was an old established tradition going back for many years, despite changes of ownership. That was my contract. So I went to London, took leave, didn't want to make it part of my uh, official functions in, in case it all went pear-shaped, and that they and they banned the paper or something. I wanted them, if necessary, to be able to cut me off. And I went in, interviewed this most courtly and polite and decent human being, Oliver Tambo, and his wife served us cake and tea. And um, he gave me the interview. And as he ended it, he said to me, well, are you going to publish this? <laughs> I said, yes. He said, well, you'll go to jail. I won't. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what happened. Well, no, you didn't go to jail, did you? I was arrested under the Internal Security Act, which could have meant three to ten years in prison, depending mm-hmm. on the severity of to what extent I was breaking that act. depends on which section I was charged under. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was hoping it might be only three, but I was charged. They were about to charge me when... Long time after, well over a year later, they dropped the charges. My own feeling is they cooked up something with the um, the company, uh, you know, in the sense that the company then paid a fine. But there was no provision that I know of for, for me to pay a fine myself. Mm. And that was the end of that. But I was taken to Caledon Square Police Station, fingerprinted. I discovered that when they fingerprint you, they take two thumbs. And they forgot one thumb, so it became an issue, and I thought they might throw me down the stairs in in Culloden Square, which was quite a 
quite a frequent occurrence. Like John Foster's way in Johannesburg. Yes, indeed. And uh, we had uh, Imam Heron in Cape Town who mm. died later in Maitland police lockup. But he was supposed to have fallen downstairs. So I was a bit edgy when all this happened. And uh, then I appeared on remand. Uh, sometimes on a Monday morning with all the ladies of the night, you know, sort of <laughs> tripping around in their high heels. And uh, then charges were being formulated. Uh, Sidney Kentridge was going to appear for me, a very fine silk, mm. probably the greatest we've produced. And um, he actually started off the conversation when, when he interviewed me. He said, you know, Mr. Hurd, you've committed a very serious offense. I said, yes, I know. So I didn't consult my normal friends, mm. legal friends, on that one because I knew it was illegal. Mm. And I think there are times when a bad, bad law can be defied. And the people who do that often best are journalists. Yeah. It's just the normal job they do. I, I don't see it as anything particular and particularly commendable. I just see it as my job. And I published. And they all got a hell of a fright when they read the paper Mandela was having just had a prostate operation, <laughs> and he woke up and he heard the nurses saying, Oliver Tambo's all over the Cape Times. So he grabbed out for the paper. He probably risked injuring himself. And yes, there it was. Gosh, Tony. And then you were fired as well. But we're going to take a little break now to recover from that yeah. story, to listen to okay. the, your first piece of music. And you've chosen... Keith Jarrett from his famous Cologne concert, the concert in Cologne, is obviously special to you. Yeah, it's just played a sort of hauntingly interesting role in my life, uh, related to certain periods of my life. And Jarrett, being a, a jazz pianist, produced, they say, one of the greatest piano pieces ever. And I think you'll see, we'll all see why.
Well, that was Keith Jarrett, just part there of his Köln concert, a long, probably an hour or two, Tony, of that of that music. But a great pianist, and he, Keith Jarrett, is also quite well known for playing Mozart piano concertos. Yes. Anyway, it was the first choice of my guest, Tony Hurd, ex-editor of the Cape Times, and we're talking about his book, 8,000 Days, Mandela and Beck and Beyond, the inside story of an editor in the corridors of power. And I'm wondering, Tony, what happened? You were eventually fired by the Cape Times. And then what did you do before you got this job at in the presidency? Yes, I was fired sometime after, and the company denied it had anything to do with that interview. and that. But um, that's history. Yeah. I then spent a bit of time at Harvard on a Neiman Fellowship. They invited me there, which was nice. And then I set up as a syndicated columnist. About 20 or 30 papers around the world would publish my work, including the LA Times and a few oh. others like that. So I earned a living for about eight years mm-hmm. doing that. I'm right in saying, Antai, I spoke of you about a man of words, and words seem to have played a part in your family. For example, you have a very interesting connection to a great wordsmith. Just tell me a little bit about that. Uh, William Hazlitt was one of the greatest essayists in the English language. And I was directly, I'm one of his direct descendants. And I'm quite proud of that. Mm, I'm sure. Uh, It just gives me an awful conscience about my own English when I read him. (laughs) Because he's he's a genius. Yes. So was it a matter of course that you went into journalism because of your love of the language? Uh, it was largely, I think, because my parents were both journalists, mm. George Heard, my father, and my mother, Vida Heard. And so really, uh, printer's ink was in my blood, although all I wanted to do was surf on Durban Beach. <laughs> really? Yes. Could you surf in those days? Yes, I surfed for 50 years. 50? 5-0? Yeah, I think that's why I'm still around. Good grief. When did you stop? Or are you still stopped surfing? Stopped on my 60th birthday. Okay. And uh, the children were very excited to see me standing up on the board at 60. <laughs> Good grief. And uh, then I went windsurfing and did other things and okay. tried to keep myself in reasonable shape. Let's just go into this book now. How did that all come about that you ended up in the corridors of power as an editor, where you think of an editor as being a completely objective person? There must have been some eyebrows raised when you said you were going to work for the ANC. Yeah, I got a job, part-time job, with Jake Scherwell at UWC, University Mm. of the Western Cape, a struggle university, which had struggle thrust upon them by what was happening. And uh, I advised the rector there, Jake's, and that brought me a little bit closer to ANC types who were filtering back to the country Mm. after Mandela was released. And so one, it was a birthday party of a friend when Kada Asmar, who's a man I deeply admire, although he could be very irascible, a marvelous man, he he approached me at dinner and he he made a pass at me. I call it a political (laughs) pass. And he said, you want to come and work for me in government? He was going to be a senior minister. Uh, Mandela made sure that he, he gave him a good senior job, although ironically he got water affairs, not constitutional and uh, provincial affairs. But he made such a huge success of everything he touched, which you cover in some detail. I remember while I was reading it thinking, gosh, Tony really was in 
awe of this man, Carter Osman, but he was a very special person in many ways, wasn't he? Oh, he was. And an absolute stickler for honesty and so forth. Yes. His wife, his widow, has said since that if he could see what is going on, she she doesn't know what he would do. You were his assistant initially when you went into... I was his... All ministers can appoint two special advisors. Uh, without process, really. They they have that right. Well, oh. Certainly in, the, in those days they did. And um, there was a water expert, Len Abrams, a marvelous engineer, and some others in the department. And I was the sort of communications person. So I had to sort of look after the words. Uh-huh. Okay. And Car- with Carter, it was virtually a, a contradiction in terms to try to advise him. Really? <laughs> he was, a, he was a, a don in um, Trinity College, Dublin, head of humanities for some years, a man who was highly erudite and who was decent to mm-hmm. the core. And I admired the man and worked with him for you know, five years. Gosh. And did you enjoy that change? It, first of all, it must have been a challenge after your life as a journalist and then an editor, then as a columnist. Mm. Working in a situation like that, did you find it challenging, I'm sure? Tremendously exciting and mm. challenging. Having looked in from the outside all my life, trying to adopt an independent, non-party position, I found myself advising, though not a member of the ANC, advising a minister who was a prominent ANC member. So I got access that, you know, is beyond any journalist's dreams. <laughs> and so I went in boots and all. And Did I you... loved every moment of it. And the hard work didn't worry me. Was although, it hard work? Although was I was already in my 50s. Because, you know, we'd worked hard in journalism. Mm, of course. So I, it, it was a thoroughly satisfying job to do. And working with Asmar was r- like having a cold shower every day. Yeah, Good. he was very ebullient, wasn't he? And he had a lovely sense of humor apart from anything else. Absolutely marvelous human being. Uh, Tony, we're going to take another music break now. And you've got the French composer, the eccentric Eric Satie. He's Nocien number one. These lovely little pieces he wrote. Was there a special reason you chose this? It's really just it, it stayed with me when I first heard it. And it stayed ever since with me, particularly the way it starts.
the lovely, almost serene music of Eric Satie, the Nocian Number no. 1. Another choice of my guest on People of Note here on Fine Music Radio this week, Tony Hurd, whose new book, 8,000 Days, has just been published. And I've just had a thoroughly enjoyable time reading it, by the way, Tony. It reads almost like a novel. One of the things that I know some people have said over the years, we touched on it just now, an editor has got to be the most objective person in the world with no affiliations to any party and all your life well for a long part of your life you were editor of a very successful newspaper now suddenly you were going into political parties in a circle and i know you asked various people for advice was it a difficult decision did that aspect bother you or from a conscience point of view you knew what you were doing as an advisor, you subsumed your own personality in someone else's. That was your principle. That was Card Asmal. I had no difficulty doing that. Uh, I did not in any sense give up my independence, um, and Asmal welcomed that because he was a very fine human being mm. who understood the value of opposing ideas. And, um, but I, I never really fought with him over fundamentals because I saw my job as reflecting his own objectives in politics and in, in, the, in the country and in the delivery of water, which was a great success story. How then did you move on from – so you worked with Kada Asmal for some years, but then you ended up sort of almost at the top, can I say, when you started to work for Tabo Mbeki, who was the president at the time, and for whom you and myself and other people have a huge amount of respect. But how did that come about, moving from Kada Asmal to yeah. the president? Asmal was very much in touch with top level of government all the time, and Mandela and Mbeki and that. And – I found myself on a committee appointed before I went to the presidency as a special advisor. I found myself on a committee that effectively set up the government communication and information system. Mm -hmm. And that brought me into touch with some of the top thinkers in the government, including Joel Nechitenji. Mm. Of whom you speak very highly in your who, book, I have to who say. Who was, uh, you know, the prince of the peace. Mm. <laughs> Uh, really, uh, he he still is. Yeah, he, he's yeah. the one of the finest um, thinkers I've ever dealt with. And on that committee, it was chaired by Isapahad. They called him the Rottweiler. Mm. All senior politicians usually have someone who has to go away, get the job done, and come back with half the door frame on their on their shoulders. <laughs> and Isap was the tough guy who really? had to sort out a lot of very tough things. But this side of being corrupt, in other words, not in any way corrupt that mm -hmm. I ever saw over many years. So he then sort of drew me into the presidency. When Carter was made Minister of Education, I joined him briefly, but then went on to the presidency. Okay. So there you are now in the presidency with Thabo Mbeki, who, as you say in the book, and has been a, a dapper, well-dressed, immensely civilized man with his mm -hmm. pipe. And also a great thinker, wasn't he? Because he was, as you say, the great author of our constitution, really. He, and of course, Ramaphosa was yes. the technician. The, uh, the technician, that's he, a good way of putting Ramaphosa it. Ramaphosa was in the, in the engine room. Yes. And it's his constitution in that sense. But Tabo and Becky and Mandela, they were the inspiration. And I'd include Carter Asmo's thoughts on modern issues like tolerance towards other people, whoever they might be and those issues. Mm -hmm. But Mbeki stood head and shoulders above, intellectually, above people around him. He would get very frustrated if 
discussions didn't have any intellectual content. Mm. And he challenged intellectuals to enter into debate with not only him, but with generally. And uh, I think he was a very high caliber human being, shy, uh, remarkably shy sometimes. You know, he didn't go for the histrionics of politics and all mm. the melodrama that some politicians are so good at um, effecting. But a, a decent but tough, born in struggle mm. player who got to the top as Oliver Tambo's effective nominee mm -hmm. over many years. Oh, really? And uh, I had learned to respect him deeply. I think he made big mistakes. I think the AIDS thing was a mistake. Which you, you speak about very objectively, I have to say, in the book, because it must have been difficult for you to actually say that this man whom you admired so much had made a fairly major mistake, yeah. and that will go down in history against him. Yes, so absolutely. And when you look at history, you'll see there's hardly a, a senior politician who hasn't made a mistake. <laughs> True. I mean, when you think of Anthony Eden and, and well, Suez. Absolutely. Uh, you think of um, what's going on in the Middle East at the moment and who's responsible and who's not. Yeah, Blair and Bush with uh, Iraq. It's, it's in, the, in the, the nature of the beast, mm. that politician. The thing is that he was a bit... Um, I have to use the word headstrong, if not stubborn, okay. in not departing from a position on AIDS, which was basically untenable. Mm -hmm. And as a communicator for his presidency, one of the communicators, I had great difficulty. <laughs> I'm sure you did. And my great moment was having lunch with the science editor of The Economist in London, trying to sort of propagandize him a bit. And then I realized in that lunch that this one was not going to fly and it didn't fly. <laughs> but he also, you go into some detail, Tony, about his handling of Zimbabwe and Robert Mugabe, and you call the chapter Zimbabwe snake handling, mm. which I suppose is a good analogy of what he was trying to do. Yeah, he was dealing with a, a totally dishonest human being, mm. uh, someone who was um, slithery, and would slither out of deals that had been struck for him and that. Mm -hmm. And um, I believe Tobenbeck, he, he, he comes out of that one better than AIDS. Yes, indeed he does, uh, I, if, as if he one, does in this book. And uh, Yes, I've made that point quite strongly, because you're dealing with someone who you couldn't trust mm. and who felt, you know, in a way that Mbeki was a new boy on the block. Which couldn't have been further from the truth. No, and no. Becky uh, should not have been. He was treated badly by Mugabe. No. And uh, sadly, uh, right at the end when he was being squeezed out, Tob and Becky did get us to a point where the Prime Minister of Zimbabwe was Morgan Tsvangarai. That was some progress, but then Mugabe just unpicked that arrangement mm -hmm. over the years. And Gosh. I'm afraid he was a disaster for Southern Africa, gravely endangering our own country because of the instability in Zimbabwe. Well, you cover that beautifully in the piece as well. But now we're going to have a piece of music, Tony. We're going to have Saint Sans, the finale of the Great Organ Symphony. I mean, I want to ask you why you've chosen this, but it's such a, an overpowering and inspiring piece. Have you ever heard it live in the City Hall? Yes, uh, that's one reason why you're hearing it now. Uh, I remember that huge organ mm -hmm. taking off, yes. shuddering. And the whole place shuddering. I'll never forget it. Well, this is a recording with the Cape Town Philharmonic conducted by Martin Pantelev of that particular finale. So mm. turn up your loudspeakers and stand back.
How about that for the sound of a full symphony orchestra and the massive organ in the City Hall here in Cape Town with the Cape Town Philharmonic playing the finale of the Organ Symphony by Saint-Saëns with conductor Martin Pantelyev and Grant Brasler was the organist on that recording. A choice, a splendid choice of my guest, Tony Hurd, on People of Note this week here on Fine Music Radio. Tony spending a life with words as an editor. Now we're talking about his inside story of an editor in the corridors of power with Mandela and Becky and beyond in his book 8,000 Days. And one of the things I wanted to say about Mbeki, Tony, before we move on, is that he was, as you said, he was also punished badly, wasn't he, after he left. He was treated very, very badly by the ANC and the Zuma acolytes. And you make the comment that his was not the sort of person who would build an Nkandla. He would just go to his little home with his wife and retire gracefully. How could they have been so different? And little did we know what we were in for. Yes. Tolbo Mbeki was appallingly treated unconstitutionally. Mm-hmm. It was not constitutional. It was extra-constitutional what happened to him. And yet he, in the interests of what he'd fought for all his life, he went quietly. But he was appallingly badly treated. And to this day, he's being vindicated time and again. Anyone who could craft something like, I am an African, a speech mm. like that, mm. has a place in our history. Mm-hmm. Apparently that speech had a huge impact Which when he began like that And then, you know, you moved on, Tony Well, Tabo and Becky moved out But before we get to the point where the dreaded Jacob Zuma came in You had quite a lot to do with Frank Chicane And I was interested in what you said a, a sort of cherub-like personality Because he always seemed so at peace with himself He's not very tall, quietly spoken And yet he was the victim of awful racial apartheid when they try to poison him Mm. by putting poison in his clothes, for goodness sake. But you speak of him as being almost like a stabilizing feature in the office, in the president's office. Yes, he was the sort of father confessor. (laughs) Uh, Yes, and he was a priest. Very much so. Mm. Evangelical priest. Oh, right, right. And and he had this quiet reassurance about himself, which in politics helps when things are really chaotic. Yeah. And when everyone was being taken off to hospital because they found anthrax powder, they thought it was, in the Tainhase in the presidency, Frank just sat at his desk and he said, I know who's looking after me. Well, the um. rest of them all vamoosed to the nearest <laughs> local hospital, not Frank. And uh, he was uh, a very important moral force in that whole administration. The Rev, you say they called him. The Rev. But that story that you tell in the book is quite funny because everyone rushed off to a hospital, ambulances and everything else Mm. with Frank staying there. And it was a gimmick, wasn't it? It was after Frank's poisoning, wasn't it? That event was long after Frank was poisoned. He was poisoned... uh, Nearly died um, uh-huh. in the apartheid era oh, that's right, when the that's special right. bronze laced, laced his um, underclothing with poison. Unbelievable. That's uh, an attempt to kill him. Mm, of course. Mm. And you also not only have a section about the washing of the feet from yes. Adrian Flock, yeah. but you've also picked up that lovely park cartoon from Zapiro. Yes. Well, Adrian Flock, whose men did it, mm. I, I say that advisedly, he suffered huge sort of pangs of, of remorse in later life, and he smuggled a um, basin into the union buildings and saw Frank Chicani 
managed to get an interview with him and suddenly asked for water, poured the water in the basin and said, I want to wash your feet. Frank, uh, they had this crazy argument, but Frank said, no, no, you can't, you can't. <laughs> and then eventually Frank allowed him to, mm-hmm. to release him. Because Frank From was his a, demons. And Frank was a very forgiving man. Yeah, gosh, well, it's, an, it's actually an amazing story. You know, we are reminded of these great stories, and there have been so many, some horrifying and some really heartwarming like mm. that one. And it was just after that, wasn't it, Tony, that you, the, the whole thing happened with Zuma coming in, and then you, you moved on, as you said, and you went into the minerals industry. Yes, into the, the ministry Okay. Ministry of Minerals and Resources. But I just watched what was going on with growing alarm. Mm -hmm. And I finally left government in 2016. And I'm afraid the country was virtually, effectively could have been destroyed and bankrupted. Mm -hmm. But I think it's just been headed off. Okay, one more piece of music before I ask you some final questions, Tony. Men of Harlech, that lovely march. Any reason for this? Well, at school, we used to try to sing it with our <laughs> adolescent voices, which would break every now and again. And I think we ruined Men of Harlech. So I've always felt a, that I had a special place for Men of Harlech in my life. And it's a Welsh, beautiful Welsh mm. choirs. And it was sung in the film Zulu. Stanley Baker and That's company right. were in that yes. movie. And it was before one of the battles where the Brits did quite well for a change against the Zulus. And it's uh, very moving.
Oh, that lovely tune, Men of Harlech there, and a choice of Tony Hurd, who's my guest. We've got only a short time left, Tony, but I just wanted to mention quickly, one of the other people you mentioned in your book, Tony Leon, and um, you mentioned him as the writer of that magazine from the army, Paratus, Paratus. And I thought you began rather negatively, and I thought you were going to be a bit rude about him. But you were you were actually very complimentary about this young, clearly highly intelligent, who became a leader of the DA. Yes, you mentioned Paratus. He, he wrote uh, when he was very young, and he explained that he was very young. He wrote some rather adulatory stuff as a conscript in the army for an, uh, a military magazine about Bantu stands, which uh, is not very nice thought at the moment. <laughs> but um, he's a person with enviable intelligence. And he built up the numbers in the DA considerably further than Eglin did and Helen Ziller. Mm. And he did very well. And although I got Carter in a draft of a speech, in a speech he delivered to describe him when he became leader as as new leader in short pants, because he was quite <laughs> young then, and that we've had a sort of uh, mildly contentious background, Leon and myself, over the years, and he has a few swipes at me in his book, and I have a few swipes at him. But I think he's a very impressive human being, and he wrote marvelous reviews for the Weekly Mail in his day mm-hmm. on books and that. That's right. That's he's an enviable mind. And we've still got columns of his in the Sunday Times now from yes. time to time. and he's always worth watching. And you were also very complimentary about Colin Eglin. yes. Colin Eglin was busy behind the scenes when the party was in trouble or not not in trouble. I was never a member of the DA. And he was a decent force through, throughout his life, breaking down barriers all his life, one by one, in a way doing what I think Ramaphosa is trying to do with the building blocks that he's putting in place at the moment. Mm-hmm. The two are quite similar in their own way although I'm sure Ramaphosa won't appreciate that remark particularly. <laughs> he might. There's no reason why mm. he probably did respect Colin Eglin. Well, uh, ANC people did, and uh, some I worked for actually mm-hmm. you know, went to Colin Eglin's 70th birthday and all that. Tom mm-hmm. Becky went to his birthday in Seapoint, oh. celebrated in Seapoint, oh. yes. So, um, but Colin uh, was just one of those what I'd call slightly left-of-center liberals, I'm not so keen on the right-of-center liberals mm-hmm. uh, and the commercial liberals. Um, you know, <laughs> I won't ask for any names. Milton Friedman and uh, the people who follow the philosophy of the market forces are everything. Well, they're mm-hmm. not everything. Mm-hmm. There's so much more involved in politics. I know a mutual friend of ours, Peter Sowell, said that when Colin did come in, he was a great strategist as well. He he got the party many more seats in Parliament when Helen Sussman was threatening to leave if she was the only person left. And he turned the party around, actually, didn't he? Yeah, the, the, he turned it up into seven seats mm-hmm. at that stage. Mm-hmm. And there is a story that a couple decided to make love every time a, a DA prog won. <laughs> and the, the night was pretty exhausting. <laughs> On that one night? Yes. <laughs> that's a very well, good story. Well, uh, that's, that's quite a record. It is, yes, it is. Tony, before you go, tell me what you're going to do now. You seem to be still quite busy. You've retired from the minerals department, and now you've stopped surfing. So are you going to write another book? I, I write and I edit, and I'm doing a book on my father, George Hurd, naval lieutenant, 
anti-fascist writer who disappeared without trace in 1945. Mm. And that's an amazing tale. I think I've cracked it, and that will come out in due course. But I'm going through tomes and tomes of documents, and it will be a a record of, of a sudden disappearance of a very prominent South African journalist. Gosh, we'll have to talk to you about that when that comes out. And I know one of your other books of a few years ago, The Cape of Storms, has done very well, hasn't it? The Cape of Storms was a book about my journalistic career, mm. um, you know, 50 odd years. And um, it, it sold quite well and was published in the United States, University of Arkansas Press. And it still floats around. And it covered all the stuff that happened in apartheid. And it's so much of that that one, the mind boggles <laughs> when you think of how different things are, yes. are and, frankly, how better things are. Well, your last paragraph, Quo Vadis, in your mm. book, This 8,000 Days, you give us a little lecture, don't you, about – I know not only saying where do we go mm. from here, but – encouraging people to absolutely support Cyril Ramaphosa and to be nice to each other. Well, he's the best show in town, Mm. and uh, there's no one else anywhere near him. There are very fine people, and one day a best-person government might emerge, and we can draw on the very best. At the moment, I think the party issues are far too restricting, Mm. and I think we're moving, hopefully, in the direction of coalescing between sensible parties. And, of course, one of those is the DA. Okay, well, we'll have to leave it there, Tony, but your book is called 8,000 Days, Mandela in Beck and Beyond, the inside story of an editor in the corridors of power. I can certainly urge you to get and have a good read because apart from reading about Tony's days in the president's office, it's a kind of history, a potted history of South Africa over the last 8,000 days, which I found very interesting. Also, finding little snippets that I didn't know about that you picked up in the course. So it's a thoroughly good read. So congratulations, Tony. Now, you've asked for, I thought you said Jerusalem, but it's not Jerusalem to end. It's Jerusalem. Now, why are you playing that? Because I think mainly during COVID, mm. it was such a relief to see people having fun, <laughs> yes, spaced true. apart. Dancing Jerusalem. And it's also deeply African. And we live in Africa. And that's our destiny. There you are. Words of wisdom from the wordsmith, Tony Hurd, who's been my guest on People of Note this week. Tony, thanks. We'll play you out with that. Thank you for a very fascinating discussion. Thank you. Oh,
me, I call People of Note on Fine Music Radio was proudly brought to you by Peter Turin Productions. FMR.